Hey, everyone. This is George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. And I'm here today hosting the No Film School podcast. Charles is out, but with me is Gigi Hawkins. Hi there. Joe Light. Hi. Yaro Altunen. How's it going? And Jason Hellerman. Hello. It's a full house. We have a lot to talk about. A lot of our regular contributors joining us this week. And we're talking about crypto and everything going on there and how it applies or doesn't apply to filmmakers. We're talking about Netflix and binging and the streaming world and the chaos that has ensued in that world. And we're talking about Cinegear, which happened last week and Yaro attended. So we have some cool updates and news from there. And also a really interesting story from Sarah Pauly, filmmaker and actress, about Terry Gilliam, beloved filmmaker as well. Here we go. All that and more on the No Film School podcast. That was a great channeling of Charles Hain, George. <laughs> Do it a billion times, literally. <laughs> no. All right. So first up, <laughs> I'm, doing, I'm doing every little word that Charles. Yes. First up, we're going to talk about Sarah Polly and this thing she wrote with The Guardian about Terry Gilliam and how she was, you know, she made her debut in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which was a massive flop, and it's a very strange movie. And she tells the story of how thrilling it was to get the job, how much of a nightmare the experience was, how much it traumatized her, how she tried to reach out to someone else who was a young person who was cast in another Terry Gilliam project, how she communicated with Terry Gilliam. And there's all kinds of interesting stuff packed into this story. But the real takeaway is just that some directors be monsters. <laughs> and Gilliam, as beloved as he is in the community and so many of his works, are definitely pushed people and things to the limit and the brink. And I think we're kind of entering an age. I mean, this this caught my eye, at least, and I'm curious to hear what all of you think. But I think we're kind of entering an age where we're starting to say, no, let's not do that. There's another way. There's got to be another way. Or maybe it's better to just not make the perfect movie if it means not ruining people's lives or psyches. And I always feel like, for me, one of the things I always come back to is like, like, is it ever worth it? I mean, some one in however many movies are like absolutely amazing and we love them and it's great, you know, and but yet like so many times and, and I think that this she communicates this so well and what she wrote is like she went through so much to make this movie and the end result was like it was a big flop. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the movie's bad. It's not. I saw it. I remember seeing it in the theaters when it came out. But it does make you kind of wonder what did I go through that for? And why shouldn't anyone go through all of that? And I know there's a other side to this coin, which is that like everything beautiful is difficult, but there's layers to difficult and what it takes, especially when it comes to children and what children are put through in Hollywood. It's kind of horrific. It rarely ends well. It has in her case, but that's definitely an exception to the standard tragic story of young people who are thrust green at an early age. So I'm curious, uh, what did you guys think of reading this? I think it was it was really heartbreaking to read about this traumatic experience making the film, especially when she came into it at such a young age with her parents, where as a family, they were such big fans of 
Terry as a, a creator. But the thing that really got me was like the fact that she was put in these situations that were causing her to feel fear for her life. And the fact that she would come out of these sort of like explosion scenes, sobbing, crying hysterically. And it wasn't until many, many years later that she finally felt validated in that experience when one of the special effects people who worked on the on the movie was articulated and apologized to her and and said how traumatized he was seeing the look on her face after these shots, after going through these scenes that they then often would go through again. And the thing that I've been noticing in as sort of like a newcomer to this industry is these type like I I don't fully I think the blame goes beyond Terry but also towards the people who were protecting him, like these this sort of bubbles around people who are put in elevated as auteurs and that almost enable this behavior. They're not being held accountable because, you know, I'm sure Terry felt all this pressure and did and also maybe didn't even have the capacity to recognize the harm that he was doing. I don't know much, anything about this director, but the insulation around people in power creatives in power, that is also scary to me. Yeah. No, I I mean, I, I agree. And I'm glad you mentioned the part of the special effects person who reached out and was like, hey, it, you know, it, it distressed me as well. Joe, uh, I'll go down Joe, Yarrow, and then Jason, if you guys have, have any thoughts you want to throw in. Cool. Yeah, I... I am a big Monty Python fan. I know their proclivity for like using explosives. So it wasn't a surprise that that was something that came into this project as well. I actually haven't seen this movie, seen a lot of Terry Gilliam's other works, but not, not this one in particular. So I didn't know any of this background at all. But what I will say is that the first thing I thought of reading this story was the Twilight Zone accident that happened with John yeah. Landis. I don't know if yeah. y'all are. I would not recommend um, trying to find that video or anything, but that was just a horrific accident on the set of Twilight Zone, which also involved uh, pyrotechnics and a helicopter um, and unfortunately resulted in three people's death. And I'm like, this could have easily been like that level of accident just because we have this, you know, famous white male director, especially working in comedy. I think a lot of those boundaries maybe are being pushed a little bit for Terry Gilliam. Maybe, I don't know, I'm just making that assumption where people are saying like maybe this isn't safe or we need to protect this this child actor she's cold she's freezing she's getting sick in a tank and there's just no one around to say like hey can we can we take a step back and consider safety above whatever the vision is for this project but yeah that's definitely where my mind immediately went was just that accident and how easily it could have been like that bad yeah no i i didn't think of that but it's somewhat contemporary to it and yeah that's you know there's no ad or producer who feels empowered to step in and say to that you know landis or terry gilliam type like that's enough you're done you got it yeah well even the fact that 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 one was in 82 and i think this um sarah Pauli's experience was 87 is that right Mm -hmm. yeah so it's so it should have been yeah it should have informed it. it Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, and and there's, God, there's so much about that Twilight Zone nightmare, but it's one of those things where you would think that that safety. We've talked about safety on set on the podcast a number of times because of 
um, rust, but like there, there is just no excuse for endangering people for real, you know, especially children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's also another level to this, like beyond, you know, the importance of being safe and also kind of holding people accountable. But there's like this weird thing happening in Hollywood where they give these artists you know, the, the uh, opportunity to do whatever they want and nobody says no. And I guess that kind of ties in, with, you know, uh, holding people accountable. But, you know, some people, like, they do those stunts. They do those crazy things. And yet they keep normal hours and they, you know, they keep things safe. Like, you know, most recently we have Top Gun, where majority, if not all, of the aerial shots were shot in giant you know, military planes in the air. And then nobody was complaining that it was you know, too dangerous or too hard. I think there's um, like a, a difference between artists that care about the art and the creators and then artists that only care about the art and will push people to, to do whatever it takes, you know, which is wrong. Yeah, Top Gun's a good example. Um, we had the editor on the podcast and he was telling me about how hard it was, how long they worked, how much footage they got, how many reshoots they did, how exacting everything was. But you never once got a sense that they were spread thin. And I think mainly because they had so much at their disposal resource-wise. And I think that one of the places where the rubber meets the road is when you don't have that. I mean, she mentions Uma Thurman because Uma Thurman debuted in... It was her first movie, was Baron Munchausen, and she was a little bit older. But I just it just reminds me because the Uma Thurman stories about Kill Bill and the car accidents and stuff mm-hmm. and the and the being pushed on the stunts. And I think that like we know Tom Cruise is like he lives for that, right? Like the stunts and doing it and like he's it's up to him and it's his call and it's his movie. Like he's the deciding factor. But I think you get in this power play a little bit where like Uma Thurman on Kill Bill doesn't feel like it's her call. And Sarah Polly certainly on Adventures of Baron Munchausen doesn't feel like it's her call either. So right. that's kind of where it gets awkward. And that's where you can kind of bring in, you know, you have to put pressure on executives because I think above the director, above the talent on set, there's always the people holding the money. And that's where that's what the final decision is made. But I do see, even at like a very indie, even short film sketch level, sometimes this behavior of prioritizing the art over everything at the at the expense of the people who are working on the projects, and 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 it feels like almost like an again I come back to like an EQ thing, or a, sometimes it's a lack of awareness, and and it feels like up front how do you work with somebody when they're not even when they're so focused on getting their project together their baby you know and i worked with a director who i i love their work and and i'm such a fan and they're so talented but um i had to sort of talk to them and give them feedback about things like email etiquette and saying thank you you know there's sort of like a, a little bit of a lack of being human and, and I, you know, looking at Terry's story or this particular story, it just feels like a sort of lack of seeing people as human and doing anything for 
again, the shot. I totally missed like the indie, the indie mindset because you're totally right. You have, you know, people like trying to stretch their budget as much as they can. But it, I feel like there's also this weird like ego that people think directors must have where they have to be like vicious and push people and, and kind of be heartless on some level. That's the part that I am glad we circled around to eventually that I think it goes far beyond the entertainment industry alone. I think there is a general um, idea that if you are exacting and pushy and difficult and inhuman, you're like doing your job. You're like leading correctly. And I don't believe that. And I think that it has an opposite effect oftentimes, but it's certainly true. It's like we see the way we've lionized like Steve Jobs or certain other people, like maybe Elon Musk is an example as well. But like we kind of lionized. It always this. comes back to Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just the frequent. Uh, I mean, he lists, I know he's a listener of the podcast, but yes. this is often a topic. But the, just the idea that if you are that way, then that's, you know, that's how you lead. That's a way to lead. That's an effective, like, the grind never stops kind of thing. And I just, yeah, I'm not on board with it. I think that it's part of what, like, personally, but I also think there's a lot of evidence that it leads to these sort of dangerous, catastrophic situations. It's easier to be, like, a hustler and work hard when you're a billionaire and, like, don't have to worry about rent or food or anything. I also do think that there is a, the culture is shifting. You know, I think we are just at the beginning of looking in the the film industry, but also beyond that, like how to create psychologically safe working environments, because, you know, even if she wasn't in danger as a kid, even though we now know she was because of the special effects person, if she felt that she was in danger, this seven years old feeling like you're gonna die oh I mean so I think that like now more than ever we're prioritizing that psychological safety like having intimacy coordinators on set for example that job didn't even exist five years ago I think I mean it's so new so that gives me hope of leading leading in a humane way um doesn't Clint Eastwood have like a really good strict you know, onset policy where he's like, we're not going to do more than eight hours. You only get three takes, come prepared. Like, is that, yeah, I feel like, you know, people, uh, there are artists out there that, you know, fit into this, you know, let's keep everybody comfortable and and in a creative headspace. And there's got to be more of those. uh, And on top of that, you know, the Godfather was filmed on eight hour days. Like it wasn't, it, it, it historically that, there has there's proven successes that were filmed in a way if Charles was on he would be geeking out so hard about this because we love to talk about it but it's very you know it's doable it's totally doable totally and then I you know we hear a lot of like workflows and processes from even modern creators where they're like oh I come to set without a script without what no without you know, knowing what I'm going to do and I'll just make it up as a, as I go, you know, no shot lists, no storyboards. And, and sometimes that, that creates 
make room for creativity, for improvisation, but it also puts a lot of pressure on people on set. And, uh, you know, there's got to be a fine balance out there somewhere. Yeah. I don't know how to pivot, so I'm just going to jump right into it. We need to talk about streaming platforms. <laughs> I don't have that Charles skill. We're going to talk oh, about here streamers. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, something about Euphoria. It was a weird, creative, improvisational thing. Speaking of streamers, HBO, whatever. There you go. Yeah. There's your segue. Okay. Yeah, that's that works. Um, that's right. We did talk about Euphoria's issues on set, and Euphoria is it's HBO, right? So Jason discovered a couple of articles over the last weekend. We've been talking a lot on the site and on the podcast just about what's going on with Netflix and how they're facing certain challenges and how they are still sort of in the binge model. But the other streamers out there are, you know, doing their own thing. And it's a little bit different. Jason, do you have any, do you want to present the story to us? Sure. I I don't know if you guys are like me at all, but my list of must-watch TV shows continues to get longer and longer as more TV shows come out, and I still am spending time watching these TV shows I haven't caught up with. You know, like this week, uh, I finally saw the end of Barry, and, uh, you know, now I need to finish Stranger Things. By the time I finish Stranger Things, the boys will have all dropped, and, you know, the list gets longer and longer and longer. It can be quite overwhelming. When streaming came out, Netflix, you know, felt like just something you were adding to your list. Like, oh, I should check out this Lily Hammer show. You know, like, I should take a peek at whatever. But really what it did was change a lot of expectations, I think, for viewers. Netflix started with this binge model where they would just drop all the episodes at once. So you had access to watch it as fast as you wanted or as slow as you wanted. And oftentimes, I don't know if this is true for anybody else besides me, but like I could get three or four episodes in and I didn't mind quitting a TV show on Netflix if I didn't like it because, hey, it was all there. I knew it was there. So I could walk away and, and, you know, wouldn't take four weeks of my life. It might just take a Saturday afternoon, which would feel like a waste, but it wouldn't be like, I've wasted every week doing this. Um, Recently, Netflix has come under a lot of fire, um, mostly because a lot of people have started to disagree with binging things. And when they drop Stranger Things, it feels like it's part of the cultural phenomenon for just a couple days. And then everyone's watched all of it and you're waiting for it to drop again. Uh, Although I, I keep getting that Kate Bush song on every TikTok I scroll through. So, you know, maybe they know something we don't, but uh, Netflix's uh, CEO went on record this week and saying the binge mode is not going to change. They've, you know, they've looked at the numbers, they see who's watching what, when, and for them, uh, it's still a viable thing. And George has mentioned that other places, you know, including HBO Maxes and many other streamers have opted to go for the weekly thing to try and keep things in the cultural conversation and also because they're shooting things in a more traditional tv format which is you know you have writers rooms off writing a couple scripts then they're being shot while other scripts are being written and people are going back and forth the set whereas netflix is shooting everything almost like a feature in that for a lot of these shows they'll write all the scripts lock them then they go away and shoot all of them back to back to back to back so like maybe over the course of 65 to 100 days. I don't know how long Stranger Things shot, but probably a long time considering the length of those episodes. Get them all in the can, get them in post, and then drop them afterwards, which again is a completely different thing and really changing expectations. So, you know, there's really no end to this. You know, for Netflix in general, they have the most subscribers of anybody. It's around 220 million, which is a crazy high number. They've certainly lost a couple million recently, just given uh, the world and also like the way streaming is, but you know, Netflix is part of a bubble that is actually like so big it might be bursting, and it's not their fault in that they're not doing anything inherently wrong. It might just be that for the first time in the history of humanity, we have so much available all at once. You know, it, it's like when you go to the library to check out a book and you realize there's you know 
10,000 books. You know, we have so many titles from so many different streamers dropping so many different ways that it's hard for people to just consistently look at one thing. Netflix used to be the app you default clicked on when you turn your TV on. You're like, oh, let's just see what's on Netflix. Now you have 10 to 15 apps. I don't know what your guys' TVs look like, but it's hard for me. I'm not clicking on Netflix right away. Sure, it comes on my Roku remote. You know, I'm sure they pay a pretty penny for that. Uh, but <laughs> have I their am, own button? Exactly. They have their own button. You know, like I'd love to know what the money is behind that. But uh, I don't know about your remotes, but mine has four or five other buttons on it, right? You know, like I can go right to Amazon, go to HBO. Yeah. yeah. Funny, and, funny anecdotally on this topic, but, you know, when I went on today, I think this morning to put something on for the kids. And I just was like scrolling through stuff and I was like, oh, the boys, that's another thing that I'm supposed to be watching that everybody's always talking about. <laughs> it's awesome. And it I like hit it. my, right. No, and it hit my mind that it's like sitting right there and I can watch it anytime. And I was like, it, it's like, it's not like, I, I think because I'm older and I have still a mentality of like, well, I missed a lot or like I'm behind right. or like it's already been out or there's many seasons. It's like, dude, it's all sitting right there anytime. And I think that's this kind of crazy, like we're talking, this is a filmmaking podcast and we're talking about what filmmakers can do and need to know and how the world is shifting around them. And and one of the ways that's become so insane is the glut of content constantly available to everyone, which makes the idea of the binging versus slow drip model fascinating because how do you best stay in the conversation or relevant? And I'm not sure and I'm sure Netflix's data is more valuable than my hunches, but like, I'm not sure that, or, or Disney Plus is, doing an Obi-Wan show drip where every week you get one versus, and there's six, versus doing a Stranger Things dump. You know, I'm not sure what gets you the more bang for your buck. I'm sure they have many models where they see how it's going to work. So much we've talked about on the pod over the years is this, as streaming has expanded and changed is like, how big are you in the conversation? Like, are you, are there tons of memes? Do people have to mm -hmm. stay up to date? Like the internet world and the social media platforms are kind of the new water cooler where everyone's talking about whatever's been on, but it's all so fragmented now. That like the library, like you said, Jason, in your metaphor, like everybody can go find a book they want to read and none of them have to be the same. And I think that's both paralyzing, but thrilling for creative people because yeah. you, can, you, you can find an audience that's, that's like you in whatever niche you want. The hard part is like getting to them and, and getting them to know you exist because like me, they're turning something on and seeing this like the boy, the boys is just one of so many things that they're seeing. That's like, oh right, like I, I I'm behind. I got to see that. I got to see that. Like the list is too long. It's a really interesting thing to watch right now. One of the biggest things I think that streaming changed is is the library. Right before it was all new releases. You were turning in, to, sorry, tuning into like musty TV Thursdays to watch the brand new Seinfeld, the brand new Friends, and then like whatever show they put on after you know cbs had the big bang theory and it was always like okay who's gonna go after the big bang theory because a it has a ton of ratings and like what show could benefit from staying power modern family was the same way and you know you saw like parks and rec in the office and whatever all these shows that were drawing people in but what streaming has done has been like oh we have a library like this week uh, i watched hbo max but i didn't watch hacks season two and i didn't watch you know any of their new shows i watched the wire 
because they have a whole thing on being like, hey, it's been 20 years since The Wire came out. Check out The Wire again. And I love The Wire. And I was like, I never need an excuse not to try a new thing. You know, I'm like, sure, I'll fall back into this easy thing that <laughs> that I find to be that I find to be very comforting. And I watched The Wire and they had a podcast with uh, I think Method Man does the podcast. They're like, you know, revisiting The Wire and that library idea, you know, like you can't go to the movies and see an old movie. Like once in a while, they'll be like, oh, we're re-releasing The Godfather or whatever. But like what Netflix and these streamers have done is like allow you to fall back into watching 40 episodes of The Office or Friends or Seinfeld over and over again because of that comfort yeah. food level and because of that, yeah. like, I don't have to try something new. So the pressure of new stuff plus the depth of the library is really what's valuable for these places. And that's why like Netflix dropping binge stuff, I don't think they really care because at the end of the day, they don't care about being a part of the ongoing conversation. They care about keeping you watching over and over again. And they know you will continue to watch as long as you have every episode of Seinfeld to scroll through and 30 Rock and all these other things, just like these other Aren't those on Peacock, though? Well, (laughs) The Office is on Peacock. (laughs) But but those are on... uh, Sorry, 30 Rock and Seinfeld are on Netflix. And Netflix bought them for a lot of money. They were on Hulu for a while. They bought them away from them. You know, it's... It's who has the deepest pockets yeah. and who can create the biggest library, which is why Apple is always kind of in the background because they're they're not renting yeah. anything; they're only making new content. But that library is, you know, I like I look at it like your little lend, local lending library. It's like, hey, you've got some cool stuff here, you know. Like, uh, I like I, it's yeah, I need to go back, but yeah. I also some, like. The, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. There's Jill. something. I mean, you hit the nail on the head with this sort of like content FOMO which I have all the time in terms of like, oh, I need to watch Hack season two and I need to watch the latest season of The Boys and stuff like that. But, and I'm working right now on a show, a mini series for another streamer. And one of, and so my hot take is like this idea of releasing, having a little bit of both, like releasing two episodes at, at a time over the course of a certain amount of time. So what you're getting is like, a weekly dose of almost like a movie of a show, because I I think that as we're getting more and more into this TV episodic landscape, they're becoming like more cinematic than ever. And, and so I think it satiates this desire to like sit down and, and watch more than just a single episode, which I often feel like if it's being, you know, dripped out over the course, one episode at a time, I'm like, well, I want more or, I'll just wait until this is all released so I can consume it at my own pace. But this idea of like giving the option to, you know, binge or catch up. And then it's sort of that middle space. That's, that's where I like, if, you know, if I was creating my own show, that's what I would do. It feels like uh, how much of this drug can, can Netflix and all the other streamers dole out. So we stay addicted, but not overdose. And it's like, like, where's this nice, fine balance? It's, it's really weird. But, you know, I, I, I wanted to kind of tag uh, tag on to Jason's uh, comment about the library. I think libraries are very important because there's so many good shows that, you know, in the past didn't hit that, you know, magic syndication number and just disappeared. And then you're like, oh, I want to watch that weird show with that, you know, weird concept or or something and then it just you can't find it because it just doesn't exist anymore it's sitting on you know some some betamax tape in somebody's closet you know in an archive somewhere and that's a shame so if we have to kind of suffer through like the binge landscape in order to have a library you know i think i think that's okay but also on the topic of netflix it's interesting to see how 
the first of the streamers is going to handle this because the first always has this ego like, oh, we did it. We're the first, so we know what's best. But then everybody else that followed Netflix has the advantage of hindsight where Netflix is like, no, we did it. We know what's best. And Disney's like, oh, well, here's how, here's like 20 ways you fucked up that we're not going to do, you know? And then they're evolving. They're evolving the the streaming model and Netflix kind of isn't. So we'll see how that turns out. I do think Jason's point about the depth of pockets, which is why I see Apple and Disney just as like looming there, like these massive powerhouses that can dominate this field if and when and how they choose. Yeah, and throw um, Amazon but, into that mix and endless yeah. supply of money, you know, billions right. of dollars to give and take risks on Lord of the Rings and things like that. <laughs> to make a crazy Lord of the Rings thing. And if it doesn't go well, it's like, well, it's fine. It's not our, <laughs> this is not our bread and butter anyway. Like we're still delivering a shitload of shampoo to everybody all around the world or whatever. Like, I, yeah, I, I just think that it's becoming a really interesting space for us as creative people, because we have to figure, people have to figure out how to coexist with all these massive giants and cut through the noise and be seen. And, you know, it's, it's insanity how much is available. So there's going to be, I think, more and more ways that people break through and hit these kind of targets, like smaller targets with their content and their ideas that you can recognize that like the idea of making something that everybody wants to go see, which, you know, Top Gun is, or not everyone, but certainly a big percentage of the population in a kind of classic four quadrant sense was like, yes, we will go out to the movies again and buy tickets and see this movie. And that is sort of going to be, you know, where that was once the goal of most things being made. That will not be the case, which is crazy, right? Just thinking back across our our lifetimes, like that will no longer be the go-to. That'll be like reserved for certain things, wherever other things will be like, well, we're really only looking at trying to get this one sliver of the audience engaged. Yeah, everyone's going to try to pick their, their niche. I'm also interested to see how Apple and Amazon are going to kind of tackle the streaming world because they kind of already have a like a built-in library. People come to, you know, iTunes to rent and buy movies. People go to Amazon Prime to rent and buy movies. So there's already kind of a built-in library there. I wonder how that's going to affect their kind of business model. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, we're going to, we're going to find out, but every passing story about what's happening in the world of binging makes the whole thing even more fascinating and overwhelming. Speaking of things that are fascinating and overwhelming and everyday changing, <laughs> crypto had a bit of a hit in the news today. See, I, I did it. I made nice a segue. Effectively. I did That's a segue, segue, Charles, wherever you are. But no, the, <laughs> so we've talked about crypto on this podcast a few times because blockchain and crypto and NFTs and filmmaking have found certain crossover. We've covered it. Jason, you covered it on the site. And we've discussed it and we've had guests on and it's been a thing, you know, as any emerging tech or field has been where there's been like, a, what is this? How is this going to impact the filmmaker and the world of, you know, making content and films and finance and all of that? And, you know, I'm calling back to it because things have definitely taken a turn. The market, the crypto market is kind of cratering on itself and now we're starting to look around and see it sort of like all these celebrities and stars who are doing Super Bowl commercials. And it's, it's all looking kind of silly and bad at the moment. But just to counterpoint, I'm curious if anybody's looking at, I mean, and 
I'm just going to throw in another story that we covered, and there was another update today. We talked about on the site, on No Film School, we wrote about Seth Green having his Bored Ape NFT stolen, but how it was part of a show that he sold. Which, Jason, did you cover that one? Yes, I covered it. Uh, you know, they released today that Seth Green paid $260,000, I think, to get his ape back so that he could use it for the TV show he already sold it for. I know. How much, do you, how much did he sell the TV show for? Do we, does anyone know? Is it ever we, quoted? We don't know. And look, not to be Do like we know how much he paid the first time for the ape? Uh, around the similar of what he paid to get it back. But like, the fun okay. thing here is like, <laughs> aside from like Schadenfreude and everything else, like, if you're making a TV show, like, he can probably write that cost loss off. Like, there's lots of, you know, math that we don't need to go into here of like, having something stolen, doing whatever, like the insurance of it all and whether or not his show right. insurance will never know covered that or or maybe the studio or network covered it or, or even like at this point, like is all good press or all press is good press. <laughs> right. I mean, I know about know this about, show. Yeah, I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I never would have been. And I, I, I think Seth Green's a funny guy. I have no problem with him. Like whatever. But I don't know if I would have been as interested in his TV show without knowing he was robbed. You know, doing something <laughs> of, a, of an internet image. Yes. No, yeah. but it's he, true. He robbed himself and now it's a text write off. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's Allegedly, another. Sh- no, never happened. Made it up. Please maybe there's a, me. maybe there's a producer's style plot built around someone robbing their own NFTs for a show. I'm sure there's yes. one built around be. selling them, you know, like having a, <laughs> but you know, I think like so- g- generally crypto and Hollywood have been, I don't even want to say at odds. Hollywood will always look for a way to fa- finance things, right? And crypto became one of those hot financings. And we sell things as NFTs, which is something I'm still not fully aware of how that works. I know how it works, but I just mean like back-end money and uh, shareables and whatever. You know, can we fund things through crypto? Can we buy things through crypto? And look, the market did take a huge crash. This, you know, we're recording this on a Monday morning where, you know, I think some things have been down 40%. It's, it's another thing. And not to put on my stock market hat, but like the United States stock market, NASDAQ, whatever, world stock market is also crashing and not doing well. So I think there's a lot to say about tie into the world economy and also like what's a viable income source. The one thing Hollywood will always do no matter what is go towards where there's money. Um, There was money in crypto. I think there's still a lot of money in crypto. Whether or not it's worth anything is something we'll find out in the coming weeks. But, you know, rest assured, if, if a producer or someone thinks they can turn that into cash to pay themselves or a way to get people interested, or it just becomes something you can get a news story about or someone to talk to about on a podcast, those things will always be attractive to these members. But I do think we're learning, you know, rather quickly, like what is a viable market share. And I still think cash and studio money is king when it comes to these things, because you know, imagine if you had put all of your money to make a movie in crypto and it was down 40% this morning, you know, that's like having enough money to make, you know, whatever, uh, the gray yeah. man and going I, all the way down to like ambulance budget, which can still look good and still be very fun, but there's a big difference between 200 million and 40 million, you know? So like, it is a danger. And I, I hope it doesn't hurt studios, you know, stuff like that. Take I want to hear from everybody a little bit on this, but I do want to throw out there that, like you said, the market in general is down. Markets fluctuate. And I'm not saying that the crypto thing is dead or over by any stretch because we saw a long time. Well, some of us a long time ago, there was a tech bubble and it burst and some tech companies emerged 
and they rule the world. So, so I wouldn't say that just because something has like highs and lows and dips and valleys, it really tells us anything about where things are going to finally land. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, nor does this podcast. So we're not saying we, we're seeing it. It's just something to watch because it is a constant interaction with our industry as well. Did you guys, uh, Gigi and Joe and Yaro, have, have anything? Yeah, it does feel like a bubble for sure. And, and you know, it, it was the wild, wild west, you know, for so long with crypto. Like anybody could make their own crypto coin and then like, you know, pump it and dump it and, you know, whatever to, to make their money. And, and it feels a little bit like that dot-com bubble in the, is it the 90s? Where everybody like, could just make a, like an internet company, sell it for a couple million. And then, you know, everything kind of pops in a few years. So uh, I, I want to say that things are going to kind of get refined a little bit for sure. You know, there's not going to be like fast and easy money for, for some people in, in the crypto game. So we'll see how it evolves. But yeah, it's, it's, it was definitely such a risky kind of move to have, to have your project rely on like a, a coin or crypto coin or like NFTs, which is a weird thing in and of itself because there's also like if, if it's created some, if it's created by a computer, there's also the topic of like, hey, can you even copyright this? because it wasn't created by like a human artist. And I don't know, there's a lot to talk about in that, in that space. I often excuse myself from like all crypto talk because I'm not in a place to invest in it. Though I do love investing and I believe in investing. I'm more of an ETF gal historically. And I think to me, I, I'm excited for my friends who were able to like come out on top. I have a friend who forgot that she had invested like 30 bucks in Dogecoin. And then like two years later or however long, she's like, oh, it's now $8,000. And I'm like, that's a funny story. But to me, like I just, I think maybe because it's almost overwhelming to even try to understand it or game the system. It feels like a, a full-time job to manage it. I just like kind of tune it out. And like we've talked about on previous No Film School podcast, this idea of applying it to, you know, fundraising for filmmaking, it just feels like there's a lot of hype and um, I can't wrap my mind around it. So I'm just going to take a step back. Yeah. Feeling like fundraising using crypto to make your movie feels like gambling almost you know it's like hey let's like go put a thousand dollars on red and see what happens because honestly you'd probably have better odds i guess what i would say in this specific instance is the fact that he's wanting to use it in an animated show is kind of like to me <laughs> like is it worth it it's a little cringy he, he paid for it twice and i say that not because i dislike the art or whatever or crypto but just as someone who has enjoyed like online communities before, um, Vine, Twitch, YouTube, whatever it is, and that crossover has always been, regardless of how crazy popular the original thing is, that YouTuber or that Vine star, like the crossover is so difficult. So for like this drawing of uh, an ape, is that going to finally break through i don't know but if i were on this project i would probably be a little hesitant about that actually you know being i don't know they're taking a risk maybe it's the first of many successes or maybe it is just another in this wave of 
signing this TikToker for $2 million and something not really going anywhere. So I don't know. That's kind of how I'm looking at it. Just like, who is it? Is it worth it? Is it going to break through? I don't know. I guess we'll see. I feel like this is, uh, you know, we can circle back to the conversation of how do you get through the noise? You know, how, how does your project stand out amongst a sea of just thousands of different shows and movies from dozens of streamers? Yeah. You know, hey, no, yeah. I mean, about NFTs. Right. It's a way at, yeah, Jason pointed out earlier, we know it exists. How many shows that are at this level of development do we even know about? It's hard to even know about all the things that are actively on platforms and available to watch. So like it's it's a win. You know, $200,000 well spent that I, that we're talking about it. Um that's the state of things right now. It's just extreme, but yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of good points have been made and one of the things we always come back to when we're talking about this is that a lot of times filmmakers are are taken advantage of by what looks like financial opportunity because we go where the money is because that's how we make things happen. And so sometimes the idea that there might be money becomes a trap that you can fall into and then the money evaporates. So be careful out there, but you know, do your homework and good luck. And uh, if you can finance your film this way, we've talked to the people who are doing it before, that's great. It's one way to get it done and you know, maybe get it seen because it's part of something that people are talking about and thinking about. But of course, I, I will always maintain I don't love crypto just because of what it does to the environment. I think that's a, that's yeah. a standalone reason not to be a crazy fan of it, in my my opinion. That conversation's for the uh, No Film School After Hours podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the No uh, Pollution School. I don't know. Um, yeah, so <laughs> speaking of after hours, uh, this doesn't really go, but Yaro, you were at Cinegear. Well, um, yeah, on and it, off the clock. Tell kinda, us about yeah, so. Technically, tell us about Cinegear. Tell us what it is, yeah. and uh, and let us know what you saw. Cinegear is a cinema gear expo trade show, like NAB, uh, which is uh, was initially NAB was initially for broadcasters, and then it kind of became this weird hybrid, you know, for 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 the entertainment industry. And Cinegear is basically NAB, but cinema stuff, and so it's a lot smaller, a lot more like intimate. I guess would be the right word. Here's a funny story. I, I show up. I show up early. I was like 10 o'clock. I was like, yeah, I'm here because, you know, NAB opened at nine. So I was like, I'll get there an hour later. Uh, I get my badge. They let me in. I walk in. Half the booths are filled. People are still setting up. And I was like, I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> and I realized that the show started like much, much later. The show started at two and I was three hours early or four hours early. Uh, so that was fun. So I had to sit in a, in a, a sweaty groundwork at the convention center. Anyway, yeah, it was fun. Saw some really great uh, products coming out from a lot of fun people, specifically this one kind of duo, uh, one part uh, whom we all know very well. It's Northwest Camera and Duplos Lenses. They partnered to create something called the V35 Project, which is a, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to describe right off the bat, but if you think of like lens rehousing it's a similar concept although they take modern lenses and tune them so the initial idea was they would take canon cne cinema primes which are just these giant chunky cinema lenses and they would do these weird modifications between the front element and the rear element 
So the, the lens would remain, for the most part, unchanged, except for these like, internal elements. And they would change things like coatings. They would shift certain elements, sometimes replace them, depending on what the needs demanded. And then they would try to mimic the look of these old-school vintage Canon Cinema Primes called the K35s. And so the new version would be called the, the Canon V35. And it's this attempt at mimicking vintage lenses without going and getting vintage lenses and spending you know, five grand rehousing them. And their idea was like, hey, you know, if you take, let's say, like these old vintage lenses from the 60s, you rehouse them, you take them to set, and then you break one, like how do you get it repaired? You know, because mm. usually like vintage glass, it's like cherry picked so everything matches. Like the re- the the rehouse or the the new housings are like C and C from scratch. It's like there there isn't like a C of replacement parts. And so Dominic Barbero from North Northwest Camera Company, and then uh, the guys from Duclos Lenses, Matthew Duclos and his dad, they kind of came together and created this project. And so for them, they're just taking modern lenses, modifying them to kind of produce this vintage look. And then if something breaks on it. I mean, the CNEs are still mass produced. You can you can find like boxes and boxes of spare parts that you can you know swap. And so anybody, especially if you like break a front element, which is you know for the most part what what breaks, that can be replaced because it's you know standards. It's it's stock. So it's this really cool concept of like instead of rehousing, it's kind of a tuning thing. It's it's bringing that like. Uh, hot rod mentality to lenses, which I think is really cool. And uh, mm. it's affordable too, you know, where like a, a set of vintage, <laughs> a set of rehoused K35s, Canon K35s, the originals, is over $100,000. Wow. It's obscene. And these are like... Pocket you know, change. Yeah, right. <laughs> these, uh, what's it called? The Canon V35s, the, the, the modified C&Es. You know, if you have a lens, it's like twenty, twenty seven hundred for a modification per lens. Whoa. It's not bad. Right. Okay. I mean it's not like so, it's not like a Venus Optics, you know, eight hundred dollar anamorphic lens. But you know, it's it's still cool. So you can get the kind of vintage glass look that same yeah. way. Mm-hmm. But the cool crazy. thing is Because is, that's what people are chasing a lot these days, right? Definitely. Especially in the digital medium. Exactly. And and this kind of segues a little bit into something cool that uh, Venus Optics are doing. But the one thing that the V35 project has over vintage glass is usually vintage glass has these really cool characteristics wide open. So you have to shoot at the 1.4 or 1.8. Because once you Meaning stop you need down, a ton of light. Uh, no. Uh, well, uh, no. So the lens would be wide open uh, as oh, wide as okay. it could go. Yeah. Just because that's where those characteristics lie. But Got if it. you stop down to like a five, six, where in the middle, or you know, if you go further, stop down further, uh, those characteristics disappear. And so at a, you know, at an F8, practically all lenses look the same. I'm generalizing here, but for the most part, you know, they do. And so with the V35 project, with the, with the Canon uh, V35s, they worked hard to make sure that that vintage look carried through the entire aperture range. So even if you're you know wide open at a, a T two point or T one point eight or a five six, you still get those like pleasing characteristics that you're you're looking for in a vintage lens. So it may it's definitely making that look available to way more people. I think so too, and and their their kind of mindset is you know uh, rental house owner operator like that's that's who they're targeting. 
That's their demo. So I don't know if it's going to be the perfect fit for, you know, the guy shooting on a, you know, nifty 50 he got for, you know, 10 bucks. And like, I do love my nifty 50 though. Same. I have like four copies of a Nikon 50 millimeter. And I'm just <laughs> like, uh, you know, each one's different and it works. It's fine. Speaking of lenses though, the, the Venus optics, they created an anamorphic lens. They called the Nanomorph and it's a super 35 anamorphic 1.5 squeeze ratio lens these things ah oh man they're so tiny I, I can't even you know like those mini cans of coke yes it's like that that's such a satisfying description <laughs> <laughs> i mean it, it literally looks like a tiny little can of coke and and on mounted on onto your and it's and it's an anamorphic lens which is insane i don't know how they shoved anamorphic glass into a tiny little space like that but i, I think because for the most part it's Ah, it's uh, for mirrorless cameras. I mean, there is a PL and EF mount, which is kind of a different form factor and costs a bit more. But they're like, what, 1200 bucks per lens? And that's dirt cheap for anamorphic. I mean, uh, you know, you have Ciro, which which is also very cheap, and they've had issues with kind of matching the the, the look between their, their lenses, their focal lengths. But beyond that, anamorphic lenses cost like 10 grand minimum per lens. Yeah, would you say that lenses were kind of the story out of Cinegear this year? Was that what just caught your eye the most? Or is that kind of the, like, what What else, was there anything else that rose as like a dominant narrative? Yeah, I, I feel like for me, uh, having talked to the guys from the V35 project, you know, being obsessed with, you know, anamorphic lenses and and always trying to find that piece of kit that, you know, gives accessibility. That, that, that guy who, you know, can only spend a thousand dollars can buy an anamorphic lens and get the anamorphic work. I'm always kind of searching for that, but I think everything on the show floor at, at Cinegear was overshadowed by the fact that people could finally get their hands on the, the new Air Alexa 35. And there was a, like, there's a giant booth and there was a line out the door kind of, uh, there's literally like a little black box that people go, could go into and check it out. And there was a line kind of, snaking out for people to to go in and check out this new camera which is you know the first piece of new technology from airy in 12 years i think that's the big kind of talking point airy released a camera in 2010 uh, i believe the air alexa the, the original mm-hmm. and they used that same lens uh, sorry that same sensor for the next 12 years they glued two together to make it a bigger sensor. They glued three together to make it an even bigger sensor. They did weird stuff to it, but for the <laughs> most part, like fundamentally, it was the same sensor for 12 years. And the cameras kind of, you know, evolved a little bit, but you know, the technology remained the same. The color science was the same. The sensor was the same. And it's kind of and an if it ain't broke, why fix it though? Pretty because much, also, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I think at this point, it's a little broken. Well, not broken, outdated in the sense that. No, I don't think any Airy camera, I say for like the Mini LF, is a true 4K camera. And, and Netflix requires a true 4K camera for, for you to shoot your, your kind of streaming content. And so uh, Airy was like, cool, we'll, uh, we'll do that. And so they released this new sensor, the ALEV 4, A-E, sorry, A-L-E-V 4. Uh, and it's... It, they, they somehow squeeze like an additional two and a half stops, which brings it up to about 17 stops of dynamic range. And this is where things get a little bit interesting 
Usually when you have a camera that comes out and they're like, oh, we have 13 stops at dynamic range. And then you measure it in a lab and it's like, well, we're seeing like 10, Hmm. you know, and maybe you have two more, but they're like really like down in the noise floor. And maybe you can kind of use noise reduction and get them out of there, but it's going to look gross. They're like maybe usable depending on the situation. But every time you measure like an Alexa, they're like, no, no, that's, that's 14 stops. They, they, it says 14 stops on the box. It's, you're going to get 14 stops. And so when Ari says 17, you're going to get 17. You know, at least that's what history is telling us. So it's, it's, it's amazing. It's cool. And they have like new color signs. It's more streamlined for, for, for post production. And uh, they have this new thing called textures where you can actually build in your film grain. It's like a film grain emulation inside the camera so they're, they're giving all this all this power back to the cinematographer who at one point was like oh i'm gonna choose you know like 500t you know uh, kodak film for this look and this grain and i think that that's coming that like workflow is coming back to the creator the only problem is the alexa 35 is like sixty-five thousand dollars just for the box <laughs> Like that's more than my car. That's double what I paid yeah. for my car, which is insane. So it's definitely not something everybody's going to have access to. But it's for me the one thing that I, that I find important about new stuff that's like at the high end is that eventually that technology is going to, for lack of a better word, trickle down. Not 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 that like people are going to use Aries technology, but that everybody else is going to be like, cool. How do we how do we mimic that? Because for the longest time, people were like, oh, we made a camera. And everyone's like, cool. How does it like rank next to the Alexa? How does it look next right. to the Alexa? How does it, Alexa, 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 Alexa. And then, you know, only now recently, people are like, like, for example, Sony, they're like, you know what, we're going to do our own thing. And then they did the Venice, which was its own thing. And now Red's too, like, hey, like, we're not going to do the like, film look. We're going to create our own kind of digital cinema look. Which is which is interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we'll be excited and curious to see what more people, what experiences people have with it. Certainly now that it's out, there's new Alexa technology on the marketplace. It's exciting for camera folks and mm-hmm. cinematographers. And so we'll we'll definitely keep an eye on it. We're gonna wrap it up here. That's all we've got on the No Film School podcast this week of June 13th, 2022. I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can find everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast and leave a comment. Let us know what you think. Check us out on Instagram and YouTube and follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook and subscribe to our newsletter and all that good stuff. And uh, let's go around just quickly, everybody, and and sign off. So Gigi, Joe, Yarrow, and Jason. (laughs) I'm Gigi Hawkins. You can find me on social media at Lost in Graceland and at ggihawkins.com for website. Uh (laughs) I'm Yaroslav Altunin, tech editor at No Film School. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Yarrow, uh, like iPod, and then on Instagram at uh, yar 87 because someone stole my screen name. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Jolai you can find my stuff on nofilmschool.com and on Twitter I am at Joe underscore lightly Uh, Jason Hellerman you can find me on nofilmschool.com on Twitter at Jason Hellerman and you don't need my Instagram so we're good to go (laughs) I'll share it with you privately if you do (laughs) just kidding (laughs) thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week Mm 